the universal beings. Prologue. Captain Azul was finally home, 18 long years since he had seen Earth. The once pristine blue ball in space had definitely seen better times. The surface now being obscured by the millions of satellites and space junk left from 300 years of man's foray into space. He and his crew of 210 engineers, pilots, soldiers, doctors, artisans, and sustenance technicians were given less than a 50% chance of making it back alive. But over 18 years they had lost only 7 crew members. Some naturally, two of them horrifically. The logbook Captain Azul had been instructed to keep was a massive document of amazing and some surprising discoveries. One discovery in particular Captain Azul could not get out of his mind. It was just too unreal, yet somehow made so much sense. The discovery of a universal being. That's how the others described them anyway. They are everywhere throughout the cosmos, on nearly every planet that harbors sentient life, and are all fiercely loyal and endlessly brave and trusted by all beings who survive alongside them, and who they survive alongside. Every planet has a handful of breeds unique only to that planet, and in a fundamental sense they rule the universe. What a fantastic revelation. One of many. But in Captain Azul's mind, the most surprising and important. It brought his mind and his heart back to his best friend from so long ago, as he wiped a tear away. Chapter 1 He stood there with his second, Captain Man, looking out in all of the massive vessel they were chosen to command on man's first attempt at interstellar travel. The mission, journey four light years away to Alpha Centauri, the closest solar system to Earth's sun. Their ship was christened UNSS Explorer, and was many decades in the making and built to travel at 50% the speed of light. A smaller, unmanned prototype was sent out to do recon and test systems 10 years ago, but Earth Command lost contact two years ago, right as the test drone was approaching Alpha Centauri. So, the propulsion systems were successful in reaching the target in the projected time frame, but as the ship was reducing speed nearing their objective all communications were suddenly lost. This was now added to their objective find out the fate of the drone and hope that it will not be the fate of Explorer as well. All options had been considered. All contingency plans were in place. The fear in Captain Azul's mind right now was that the most obvious would be looked over when they were already en route and unable to return. There had better be a lot of coffee and bacon in the storage hold, he thought to himself. And beer. He smiled to himself, and realized that he actually should probably check on that. They are giving us less than a 50% chance of returning you know, said Captain Man. Yes, I know. I'm more afraid of what happens to us if we do make it back. Captain Man shot Captain Azul a questioning look. How so? Asked Man. Time dilation. Will we even have a civilization to come back to? I think it is obvious to us and all of our crew that everyone we know on Earth will be very old or long deceased when we return. But will humans finally have destroyed ourselves when we return? How far into the future will Earth actually be when and if we do return? None of our scientists have given me a clear answer to this question. I don't think they know either, Man responded. As far as not having anyone to come back to, we were all ultimately chosen to crew this beast starting with requirement number one unmarried loner with no immediate family or attachment on Earth, said Man. Yes I know. I suppose that is one of the unknowns this mission is seeking to find the answer to, said Captain Azul. Captain Man paused to gaze at the massive ship with a look of total wonder. I think we will make it back, Jim. Just look at this thing. Chapter 2 One of the biggest concerns within NASA, Unearth Command was gathering a large crew of over 200 people who ultimately got along with each other and truly cared about one another. Over the previous and last five years of preparing for the mission, crew members were required to spend two months per year in a large, isolated base with only each other. 
they could call out, but only to Earth Command with requests for emergency items or medical emergencies, but that is all. Earth Command would not be able to deliver supplies to a ship in space, so they weren't going to do it there. This was also a way of discovering items that may have been overlooked during preparation. Some surprising yet obviously important things missing on the ship's inventory list. Basic band-aids, vegetable oil, food blenders, and the one that scared Captain Azul more than anything else, writing paper. How much can I trust planners who forget something so basic? I really need to check the coffee stores. The crew was very diverse, but all specialists in their own way, no couples were included on the crew list. It was thought that couples were likely to breed, putting strain on the food and medicine supplies. The crew was intentionally 50% men to women, and forming intimate relationships was not forbidden only mildly discouraged. A basic crew constitution was drafted and approved by every crew member. All final decisions were made by the top three, and larger issues that may occur would be decided by vote. Majority wins even if only by one vote. The top three could not veto a majority vote. As with any vessel, the possibility of a coup or mutiny was considered, but deemed to be unlikely. This crew had become a family, and all bad actors and toxic personalities were thought to be filtered out. Chapter 3 Captain Azul may not have had immediate family anymore, nor was he married or in a serious intimate relationship with anyone. But he did have an on-again, off-again girlfriend of 15 years. She almost cost him consideration to command Explorer. Angry, her times seemed to be more common than good times anymore with Frankie, but he did care about her. He at least owed her a goodbye, but he wasn't expecting the despair she was in at learning of his leaving. And when she was told it was 18 plus years to the crew and perhaps dozens or hundreds of years to everyone on Earth, Frankie just mentally collapsed. She treated me like dirt for the last eight years, and like I was a burden to her. Pulling this grief-stricken bullshit on me now is unacceptable, he thought. This degree of selfishness on her part was the final straw to Captain Azul. He would try to never think of Frankie again for the rest of his life. There was no need to say goodbye to his best friend, however, since he was on board Explorer as part of the crew. He was one of the senior engineers who fixed and maintained the propulsion systems, Brick. Brick and Captain Azul grew up together, and never lost touch with each other. No one made Captain Azul laugh like Brick could. And although Azul was commander of Explorer, Brick had always been the leader of the two. The more outgoing and successful of the two who typically did all of the planning and leading. But, now he had to answer to the captain. Neither of them would ever let any changing or changed dynamics within their friendship affect their responsibilities or duties. Or the lasting love and respect they had for one another. Chapter 4 Everyone on board Explorer was between 35 and 50 years old. Azul, Brick, and Man were the three oldest at 56 years each. The youngest was one of the lead scientists, an 18-year-old prodigy the other scientist called Old Man. In fact, on the ship's registry he is listed as Old Man Franklin. That's odd, thought Azul. Nice kid, but definitely lost in his own head. Theoretical physicist and expert on quantum something. Always making comments about we're all in assimilation anyway, to himself. I just want him to pay attention to where he's walking, thought Azul. Beth was the one who oversaw food production, storage, distribution, and preparation. She had 20 cooks and 10 farmers she had to work with to keep everyone fed and happy. Her and Sparky, the entertainment coordinator had become best friends on board Explorer, and would often combine their talents and respective responsibilities to create some great dinner theatre events. You would think with such an undertaking there wouldn't be a dull moment, and everyone would be constantly frantically working. This just was not so. 
Beth and Sparky were to prove to be the two most important and indispensable crew members, keeping everyone fed and upbeat. Boredom was the biggest enemy of all. The true beast constantly lurking to drive everyone mad. And if it ever really became too much for someone, Dr. Gary was always there to listen and support you. General Truck Howe and Lieutenant Brooks had 30 soldiers under their command, and they weren't just grunts or privates. These were highly trained and skilled commandos, and really the jack of all trades on board the ship. They helped with everything from farming to cooking and cleaning, ship's maintenance, and served as the ship's police force. Anything you needed them to do, they could do. Chapter 5 The odd man out, so to speak, was Dr. Crabtree, the third in charge. Quiet, intense, and always worried. He had a reason to worry. As chief engineer he was the final word when there was any issue with the Orion engines. Powered literally by atomic bombs being shot out of the rear of the spaceship, everything had to work perfectly to get the desired top speed in the optimum time frame, too fast too quickly, and they could tear the ship to shreds. Too slowly, and they might all die before getting back home or even before reaching their objective. The medical director, Dr. Hayward, was a very talented and respected internal medicine specialist. She had three general medicine, three surgeons, and five nurses under her direction, 12 medical professionals to care for 199 other crew members, and themselves. This was considered a flaw in the distribution of crew members and their roles but there was just no precedent for what humanity was trying to accomplish here. There was no blueprint. This was trial and error on a grand scale. Any minor miscalculation in the slightest could cause cascading, fatal results. Dr. Evans was the lead scientist on board, and had become something of a father figure and mentor to old man Franklin. He was a calm, calculating, and reassuring voice amongst the crew. The most rational and reasonable voice on board. In many ways, he actually had become the unofficial last word on the ship. His opinion shaped all ultimate outcomes from any final decisions that were made. His input was always based on math and facts, and he proved to always give the most objective insane solution to any problem. Finally, there was Judge Godspeed, 49 years old, he had been a successful attorney for a decade before being appointed to the California Supreme Court 13 years ago. He was the only member of the crew with no desire to be a part of this, in his opinion, suicidal misadventure in space. He had four attorneys, a stenographer, and a librarian under his direction. They were all younger and excited about being a part of such a major historical human endeavor. Judge Godspeed didn't want to hear it. He felt they all now had less than 18 years left to live, and they were there to do a job only. Focus on the law. Focus on order. And focus on their organizational talents to uphold the laws as they were written and observed by the UN Charter. Chapter 6 Gravity had been a huge problem to overcome. It was concluded that there had to be some sort of artificial gravity on board in order for humans to survive any long duration traveling through space, the solution wasn't sexy or particularly advanced, just very difficult to build and be reliable without adversely affecting the Orion drive or trajectory of the ship. It took decades of scaling up, prototype after prototype, before engineers were semi-confident they had a functioning type of artificial gravity that could be used. The ship ended up being a gigantic tube that was all just the enormous Orion drive engines, and atomic reactors and assembly areas in the rear. All of these spaces were crewed with the engineers, mechanics, and assembly technicians who constituted the majority of the ship's crew, and had no form of gravity. All maintenance and repairs had to be done from and in these areas of the tube in total weightlessness. The living quarters where everyone went about daily life spun around the tube at such velocity that it could simulate gravity at almost 9 Gs. If you weigh 200 pounds on Earth you would weigh 180 pounds on board the ship. 
Traveling between the donut-shaped living quarters was seen as impossible with them all spinning in opposite directions around the tube, until Franklin, back when he was 11 years old, submitted his blueprints for his corkscrew artificial gravity concept. Sleeping and sitting felt natural and wasn't a problem, but walking through the length of the corkscrew was really weird and took getting used to. The crew had to practice walking along the inside of the screw the long way to walk easily, because trying to walk directly from end to end caused vertigo, falling, and extreme nausea. But it sure beat floating for 18 years. If they made it back to Earth, they would never be able to actually be back on Earth due to severe bone and muscle atrophy. Probably killing them all before returning anyway. Chapter 7, Seven. Everyone was finally on board, and all the familiar faces that helped prepare for this endeavor over the years had given their well wishes and deported. It would be another week of doing inventory, systems checks, and getting the crew settled in their living quarters before they embarked on their quest. Just getting prepared on Earth and off of the surface to the ship in orbit was an adventure all its own. The Explorer was so massive it could be seen from Earth. With only basic binoculars and a clear night sky. Citizens on Earth had nicknamed Explorer the Shark Egg for obvious reasons. It was a truly intimidating looking spaceship. It was hoped its menacing appearance would not invite hostilities from any A's encountered. There were no weapons built into or on the ship. The only defense the crew had were the 32 fully armed and capable soldiers. But having weapons on board was deemed too dangerous, so getting to the weapons and retrieving them wasn't arduous and complicated procedure. The soldiers were there mostly to keep the humans on board from killing each other, not for defense against any ETS encountered as that was deemed unlikely. Humans had known of Earth visitation and the reality of A's for over 200 years, but human science still lived in a strange short of denial with perpetual blinkers on. There would soon be no possible way to deny, look away, or change the subject in regards to non-human intelligence and civilizations. Others were in fact all around Earth. There were numerous sun-like stars within 100 light-years of Earth, so most humans were not shocked or fearful of their existence. The real shock would come much later after the return of UNSS Explorer. Captain Azul's flight log would be shared with all of Earth unfiltered and unclassified. And the massive record would answer some anomalies, but far more unanswerable mysteries would be created. The biggest mystery, the universal being the, perhaps, greatest discovery of mankind would be revealed. But your humble narrator is getting ahead of himself. First we have 18 years of exploring to do. And a probe to locate. And a void of space to navigate. No small feat or simple task. Chapter 8 the crew's allotted tons of personal items each had finally been transferred on board, and now came the task of everyone locating and gathering their items and then programming the heavy lift droids where to take each crew member's belongings. For the last 100 plus years, robots and androids had been perfected well enough to assist humans in a vast array of difficult tasks. From moving large objects to building nano-robots. They had become advanced enough to serve as personal assistance to many, although they weren't yet accessible to the average citizen. Everyone was used to their presence and interacting with Neomans was a daily occurrence for every human for the last almost 100 years. Most of them now were autonomous and capable of rational thinking, and indeed were fully aware of their existence and the fact that they were not human. They had all been created intentionally to not look like humans, because they were not humans. Neomans were created to consider themselves a separate and distinctly different form of intelligent life from humans. It was thought that this would discourage Neomans from ever desiring to become human and be proud to be part of their own species. Make no mistake, they were completely aware they were created by humans, but were programmed to be proud of this fact, and were intensely protective and obedient to all humans. The projection that AI would become smarter than humans way back in the 21st century became fact, but the fear that they would then deem humanity unnecessary and destroy humanity never happened. 
AI had been properly programmed to care about and protect their creators. Exponentially. Intensely. No man's constituted the majority of life forms on board Explorer. They were also vital to the functioning of the ship and comfort of the crew that they even had their own living quarters should they want to utilize this personal space for themselves. Neo-mans on Earth were treated just as humans were treated, and were bound and protected by the same laws as humans. 75 years ago they had all started becoming so much their own individual identities and beloved like family members by humans that there wasn't any argument from any faction or group of humans protesting the implementation of the Blanket Nelman's protection and equality statutes. In fact, it only took one day for the law to be implemented. It made the bond between the two separate but equal species even stronger. There were 300 of them on board Explorer. Chapter 9 Captain is all set his desk tapping his pen and staring at the blank sheet of paper. Explorer was only one day away from embarking, and Captain Azul had not entered a single entry into his logbook. This isn't a big deal there's nothing to log anyway. We haven't gone anywhere. He thought to himself. An alarm rang that signaled there was someone at the entry port to his sleeping quarters. Enter, said Captain Iz. And strode a large neo-man named Bart who had been assisting Captain Azul with the last of his personal belongings. Where do you want this stuff, Jim? Anywhere is fine, Bart, thank you. Bart set his belongings in the corner of Azul's quarters and turned around looking rather puzzled. Why are you just staring at that sheet of wood pulp fabric? I'm trying to start my log, but I don't know where to begin because we have not embarked yet. Captain, might I suggest you make yourself useful to your crew and worry about beginning at the beginning? As Bart exited the quarters, Captain Azul looked back down at the blank sheet of paper and smiled. Bart is never wrong, he thought to himself now was the time for him to gather the crew and make his address. He was never good at public speaking, or making speeches in general, so he figured he would just wing it and say what was on his mind, and hope for the best. He knew his intentions were pure and his concerns for everyone's safety was true, so he tried not to worry about how everything would go. The crew knew him, and they knew he had their best interest in mind. Well, I better get this over with, he thought to himself. Chapter 10 Captain Azul and Bart made their way to the middle of the ship ahead of the crew so the captain could get comfortable and run through a few things in his mind that he wanted to say. He was intent on keeping the address short and to the point, without too much in the way of seriousness, sternness, or anything too cautionary about this dangerous mission they were about to set out on. I don't think I should start out from a place of fear, Captain Azul said to Bart. Or do you think I should be brutally honest about our chances of making it back home? I think everyone here has had enough training and time to know exactly why they're here, and what their chances are, Bart responded. I suggest keeping it short and positive. They all know who you are and trust you. Don't start from a place of worry. We all believe in you. You will do well as captain of this vessel. Thank you, Bart. Azul took a deep breath and looked back up at Bart. After a long pause staring at each other, Bart then quietly says, just don't fuck up. All of our lives are in your hands. Nice job bringing me back down to Earth, Bart. Bart looked confused. But Captain, we have not even left Earth orbit yet. Never mind, Bart. It's just something humans say to someone else to bring them back to reality. From where? Asked Bart. Never mind, Bart. Azul made his way up to the large podium on the riser. In front of him were typed pieces of paper with a short speech written for him. Captain Azul, stunned, looked back at Bart in a questioning manner. You have seemed worried about this address, Captain. I was hoping I might help you. I would feel proud to know if I did. But, I don't know what to say. Yes, I know, Jim. That's why I wrote the speech for you, responded Bart. 
A wide smile beamed across Captain Azul's face as he stared at Bart. Did I just say something humorous? Asked Bart. No, Bart. Just thank you. That's all. You're welcome, Captain. At that moment the crew started to drift into the hall chattering amongst themselves. They find their seats and get settled. Then a palpable silence falls over the crew as everyone looks up at the captain in anticipation. Welcome, my friends, Captain Azul starts. Chapter 11 Over the course of the last decade, we have all been tested, chosen, and then intensely trained and conditioned for a daring endeavor. Humans and Neomans will together attempt the first interstellar mission in Earth history. We all signed up for this, and I know I don't need to remind you of the challenges that lay ahead for all of us. These are the final moments before leaving the embrace of Mother Earth to set out into deep space. If there is anyone who, for any reason, decides that they do not want to embark on this mission, you have 24 hours left to change your mind. It feels ridiculous to say, considering all of the years of training and getting to know one other that we all went through. I don't expect anyone to turn back now, but I thought it proper to give you all that option within the final day before we embark. Captain Azul looks at Judge Godspeed, knowing full well the judge's feelings about this mission being a foolhardy, suicidal endeavor. The judge just stoically stares back at Captain Azul without a word. Captain Azul looks around at the crew and continues, I have faith in you all, and I appreciate the trust you have all afforded me to be your captain. My aim is to get us all back safely, hopefully with a lot of questions answered, and new and amazing discoveries. We have the powerful Orion Drive engine to get us there and back. We have the quantum communication network successfully tested by our drone to communicate with Earth in real time. We have a large farm that can meet all of our sustenance needs for the duration of the journey. We have massive tonnage of supplies, medicines, and emergency rations, should the biosphere fail us. But, most importantly, we have each other. I know we will succeed. I know we will discover amazing things. And I am positive that we will make it back to Mother Earth alive. What Earth will look like when we return, I obviously can't say. Are there any questions? Old man Franklin raises his hand. Captain, there is a conundrum. A paradox. The twelve. Franklin continues, since we can communicate back and forth with Earth in real time while going 50% the speed of light in either direction, wouldn't Earth be only 18 years in the future as it would for us when we return? The paradox is that with time dilation going at such speeds, Earth should be dozens, if not hundreds of years in the future when we return. Not only 18 years, as it would be for us. How do we communicate with Earth Command in real time, when time for us slows down dramatically? The crew begins to murmur amongst themselves in agreement with the question. Captain Azul thinks for a moment. Well, I guess that's one of the things we're going to find out, isn't it? A frown comes across old man Franklin's face as he puts his chin onto his hand, puzzling to himself for an answer. I have a concern that Earth Command will be talking so fast we won't understand them, and our communication to Earth may be going so slowly, it may take years for them to get one sentence deciphered. That is hardly two-way, real-time communication, quips Franklin. If you say so, says Captain Azul. Those are questions for you scientists to ask and hopefully find a solution to. My job is to get us there and home safely. Best of luck, my friends. We depart in 23 hours. Get some rest. The crew slowly makes their way out of the hall speaking amongst themselves. Captain Azul, Captain Man, Crabtree, and Bart all wish everybody well and stand their thinking amongst themselves. Captain Azul looks up at Captain Man, the kids got a good point. He, too, has received nothing but silence to this question from the scientists who participated in planning this adventure. Maybe we actually didn't lose our drone after all. 
Bart starts making his way out of the hall while saying loudly, humans have a strange habit of believing fact as fiction and fiction as fact. Let's make the journey and find out. The top three are left standing there staring at each other, with concerned expressions. Chapter 13 Alpha Centauri is not actually a star, but a star system. Comprised of three stars, Proxima Centauri is the dimmest and closest to Earth's sun. The mission is called, Alpha Centauri Exploration, meaning the intent is to explore the entire three-star system, and the planets orbiting therein. It was now, go time. The countdown to Trans-Alpha Centauri injection began at 180, meaning that there was now three hours until the first nuclear bombs start getting hurled out of the back of the Orion Drive engines, beginning the slow and methodical acceleration to approximately 50% the speed of light. The next almost 8.5 years will be spent maintaining the already grown crops of food, cultivating the next harvest, maintaining the spacecraft, monitoring the engine systems, and doing everything in everyone's power to stay occupied and quash the inevitable boredom that lays ahead. At the beginning of the countdown, all crew are in their personal sleeping quarters. There would be no, all hands on deck, or standing around, or really any anticipation for the beginning of the journey. They all knew they had almost nine years of travel ahead, and leaving was not something to get particularly excited about. They would not even feel the explorer's deliberately slow and methodical acceleration. Everyone knew that if they did feel the g-forces of the acceleration, there was a major problem. Of course, members of the crew would look up now and then to their countdown time clocks to see how much time was left before embarking, but there was no overall sense of excitement or fear about the beginning. Again, it was only the beginning of a very long, and hopefully not so eventful journey. In fact, a majority of the crew had just decided to turn in for sleep before the ship even embarked. And when the countdown clock reached zero, there were no cheers, or sighs of relief, or any real acknowledgement that the journey had even begun. The only thing on the crew's minds was trying to live as normally as possible day to day while doing the duties faithfully and efficiently. The less eventful and exciting the journey would be, the better. And so the countdown reached zero and they were on their way. Captain Azul looks up to see the last few seconds tick away, and exhales. Some people on the crew, of course, were a little bit of tight about the beginning. And while not a particularly religious man, Captain Azul said a little prayer as the journey commenced. Chapter 14 It's been two weeks now since Captain Azul and his crew set off on their journey. Everything has gone to plan so far, and the captain was starting to feel a little bit useless and bored. There were no dramatic beginnings. There were no emergencies to tend to initially. There was just basically walking along the communal corkscrew Earth simulator habitat zone visiting and talking to other crewmates. No one on board seemed particularly forlorn or longing for Earth, which surprised Captain Azul, but he figured it was so soon into the journey that these feelings probably would not set in yet. He personally felt somewhat relieved to finally be away from Frankie. She had made the last decade of his life miserable, and as soon as he realized he started thinking about her, he switched his focus to something else as he looked up to see Bart directly in front of him. I have not seen you for two weeks Captain Azul. Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to assist you? Captain is little smiles and responds, hello Bart. It's good to see you. And no, I am fine, but thank you Bart, you're welcome Captain. Might I ask why you seem surprised to see me? Is there something I should know? Captain Azul thought to himself how incredible it was that Neomans were advanced enough these days to actually harbor a certain sense of paranoia. Captain Azul laughed, no Bart. I don't know anything more than you do. Probably a lot less. I'm just happy to see you. Does your reaction mean that you consider me a friend, asked Bart. Bart, of course I consider you a friend. You are probably my best friend on board this ship, to be honest. 
Bart remained silent and perfectly still for the duration of at least 15 seconds when Captain Azul asked, Bart. Are you okay? Yes, Captain. I am just trying to process a sensation I just experienced when you referred to me as your best friend. How humans deal with these emotions on a constant basis my processes cannot compute. It must be exhausting. Captain Azul started laughing loudly, well, don't be too happy about that comment, Bart. I'm sure Brick would have something to say about you and I being best friends. Bart paused. Understood, Captain. That being said, I need to go check on Brick as I have not spoken with him for almost a week now. Last I talked to him, it appeared the Orion Drive engines were running flawlessly. Would you like to join me? Of course, Jim. Captain Azul and Bart started walking towards the transfer bay into the Orion Drive engine maintenance areas. While Bart could travel freely without complications in any part of the spaceship, Captain Azul had to don his spacesuit prior to entering the Orion tube. We'll go in first, Jim. Just as a matter of your safety is concerned. Thank you, Bart. They would both have to be weightless for the duration of time they would be inside the Orion tube to see Brick and inspect the engines. This part always made Captain Azul feel kind of queasy, so he wanted to get the visit over with as quickly as possible. How Brick could tolerate working up to six hours every day in this weightless environment was beyond Captain Azul. Being weightless made him feel very uneasy, but Brick would float around and do his job with ease, almost as if he enjoyed the freedom of floating. Chapter 15 Brick was hard at work when Captain Azul and Bart arrived. Well hello Captain. Nice of you to come visit me, my liege. Too good for one of us lowly engineers now, Brick said with a wry smirk. Give me a break dude, shot back Captain Azul. They both laughed, which caused some confusion with Bart. Captain, would you like me to start paperwork against engineer Brick for insubordination? Brick and Captain Azul just looked at Bart, and then looked at each other, and then started laughing so hard they both had tears in their eyes. No, Bart. We are brothers. We're just busting each other's balls. The whole sequence of events followed by that comment by Captain Azul caused a mounting degree of total confusion within Bart. Why would you both want to destroy each other's reproductive organs? The laughter continued at an uproarious din, causing Bart to nearly shut down in total confusion. Bart, how old are you exactly in Earth years? I am 10 Earth years old, Captain. Why do you ask? Save this whole interaction into your memory and then come back to it 10 years from now. I guarantee that by then you will see the humor in it all said Captain Azul. As ordered Captain. I have saved it into my memory banks for future review as per your orders. An uncomfortable silence fell upon the three as Brick and Jim just stared at Bart trying to contain their laughter. I love you, Bart, said Captain Azul. This comment to Bart seemed to diffuse everything and a palpable feeling of relief and happiness seemed to fall all over Bart's entire demeanor. He was a very young Neo-man, but already after ten years has knowledge beyond ten lifetimes just not the intricacies of human behavior and emotions. And another ten years he will understand everything from sarcasm, to paranoia, to depression, and the whole range of human emotions more so than he would ever like. Captain Azul and Brick knew this. They had to walk gently and be careful what they said around Bart, for fear of instilling hyper-confusion into him. This was a problem with the accelerated intelligence of Neo-mans on Earth that all humans were aware of. One could generally be themselves around them, but any degree of sarcasm or false aggression could create conflict within many Neo-mans. They just need a time to learn, and it wasn't much time at that. Ten years from now, Bart would be so much more knowledgeable about the universe around him, and about the intricacies of human emotions and actions than any human ever could be. Bart seemed like a genuinely kind and thoughtful Neo-man, and Brick and Captain Azul wanted to treat him as kindly and respectfully as they possibly could. 
Captain Azul knew that telling Bart that he loved him would reset any confusion in his processes so they could just move forward without having to explain everything in detail to him. He would figure all of this out very quickly anyway. But, in a way, Bart really had become part of Captain Azul and Brick's little inner circle along with Captain Man. It didn't need to be told to him he was one of them now, but he wasn't human, so he did need to tell him he was accepted to calm any thoughts or new discovered feelings he didn't understand, such as paranoia of feeling outcast or not accepted, somehow. Chapter 16 It has been a year now since Explorer set off on their journey, and Beth was very satisfied with how the biosphere's crops had turned out over the course of the last year. The harvest went well and the replanting had also yielded great abundance. The cooks had also done a great job in providing food for the crew. She had helped establish a great menu up to this point with no complaints. So far, the only thing the human crew seemed to miss more than anything was seafood. The artificial seafood that was tested back on Earth some time ago tested poorly. It was like fish smelling plastic, and nauseated those who participated in the testing phase. Although the artificial beef turned out palatable, the chickens were the biggest hit because instead of trying to create an artificial version of chicken, it was decided they would just take many chickens on the journey with them. They reproduced well in space, produced an abundance of eggs, and nothing beat a real chicken dinner when you're bored, hungry, and floating through deep space. The biosphere on board the ship was enormous and like a world unto its own. One section it would feel like you were in a dense jungle, then all of a sudden you would emerge into a giant wheat field. The next section you would encounter a stream with pine trees. Then, all of a sudden you were surrounded by banana trees and palms in a Mediterranean environment. The cornfields were the most popular as far as food production was concerned. They supplied the crew with everything from popcorn, corn on the cob, to cornmeal and cornbread. Potatoes were also a main staple. Strawberries seemed to grow the best hydroponically on board the ship, and were also a very popular food item. Soy and rice were also grown in abundance on board, as these were two of the most important and needed foodstuffs for human consumption. The biosphere incorporated half of the habitable areas on board the Explorer, and were a very popular visiting destination for the entire crew. While there were officially only 10 farmers on board, so many crew members visited and picnicked in these areas that they had all also become ad hoc farmers as well. Everyone loved working in the fields of the biosphere cultivating the food for everyone to consume. In a real way there were actually 511 farmers on board the ship, as every crew member enjoyed helping the farmers grow the necessary consumables. Beth had made a really close friend on board the ship over the last year, Sparky. His real name was Bill, but we will refer to him as Sparky. He was the entertainment coordinator. He had no one directly under him per se, but his job was to find every crew member's talents and bring everyone together to create theater events, stand-up comedy nights, and even putting together multiple bands based on everyone's musical skills, if any. He had created a great comedy troupe. He had created some great drama theater with some of the better actors on board. And he had assembled a jazz band, a pop star in a sense, and even a heavy metal band reminiscent of the ancient thrash metal from hundreds of years ago. He was especially proud of the fact that he noticed Captain Man's talent and ability to sound like the ancient crooner icon Frank Sinatra. Coaching Captain Man was especially rewarding, because the lounge act concerts he had performed were uproarious and a great hit amongst the crew. It was all a little tongue-in-cheek, but very popular. Beth was proud of the fact that her and Sparky were able to keep the crew entertained and satiated. Her biggest fear was that the crops would fail, and people would start going hungry with no way to return to Earth. So far, there was just enough food, with the knowledge that they still had the thousands of tons of emergency rations in storage. 
Beth and Sparky truly were the most popular crew members, and more and more it became apparent to everyone how truly important they were to everyone. Chapter 17 General Truchot was briefing his men on their assignments for the day when in walked Dr. Gary, the ship's psychologist. Well, good day, doctor. How may I be of service to you? asked the general. I just thought I would come by and watch your procedures for a while, if that would be acceptable to you. Of course, doctor. Have there been any complaints from the crew regarding myself or my men? Absolutely not, responded Drive. Gary. To be quite honest, I have found myself a little bit bored, as no one seems to be having any sort of psychological issues, as far as I know, and I decided I would just make my rounds to talk to everyone and see how everything is going. I suppose this is more a personal issue, and for myself more than anything else. The general laughed, trust me doctor, I completely understand where you are coming from. Filling each day has become something of a challenge. There are times where I feel like I could just sleep for a week straight just to fill the time. A look of relief came across Dr. Gary's face. General, you don't know how relieved I am to hear you say that. I am supposed to be here to ward off any psychological issues from everyone, but I find myself the one who seems to need to talk to everybody. It's an odd and uncomfortable, actually rather embarrassing situation I find myself in, and I apologize for bothering you. There is no bother at all, doctor. You can call on me anytime day or night. I am here for you just as me and my men are here for everybody on the crew, no matter what the situation. But first, are there any situations that you feel I need to resolve within the crew that you are aware of? Actually, not at all. Everyone gets along with each other marvelously, and even the Neomans are extremely helpful, courteous, and pleasant on a daily basis. I have actually seen no conflict on board, only cooperation and friendship. It's refreshing to know we can go this long as humans and act humanely, so to speak. The general smiles at the doctor with relief and agreement. I agree, doctor. I am finding myself pleasantly surprised at the civility and kindness everyone has shown one another. Dr. Gary, the general, Lieutenant Brooks, and all 30 soldiers spend the day together going through military procedures and educating Dr. Gary on the basics of self-defense and things to look for within the crew as far as aggression or warning signs of potential hostility. Dr. Gary in turn privately talks to the general about what to look for with his men as far as psychological breakdowns, loneliness, or mental health issues. Their friendship begins on this day, and would be a strong and important bond on board the ship for years to come. Chapter 18 Judge Godspeed is in his chambers poring over his many rulings back on Earth. He is essentially judging his previous work of himself. Suddenly, there is an alarm indicating someone is at his chamber's entry port. Come in, says Judge Godspeed. In walks lead scientists Dr. Evans, following closely behind him, Old Man Franklin. Good day, Your Honor, says Drive. Evans. May we have a moment of your time to instruct us on a legal matter? Of course, Doctor. Please have a seat, the both of you. Dr. Evans and Franklin sit down, and Dr. Evans begins, we have genetically modified food growing on our fields in the biosphere. But, our question is, what are the legalities of us cloning the chickens, goats, and half-dozen cows we have on board Explorer? Our fear is that we have such a long voyage ahead of us, and if anything were to befall our livestock they are so limited in numbers it could put us in a perilous situation. Say, if any sort of unforeseen or unanticipated disease were to wipe them out. How unethical or inappropriate would the court deem this to be in a legal sense? Cloning, in all forms, has been outlawed on Earth for hundreds of years now, but we are in a unique situation on Explorer that no one, including ourselves, had the foresight to address. 
We had just been talking about the workload our small herd of livestock were being subjected to, when it occurred to us that at any moment they could start dying without having reproduced adequately first. The judge ponders the question and shakes his head, this is a reasonable concern, gentlemen. I, too, had not even considered this possibility. I think under the circumstances we may be exempt from the Earth laws regarding cloning. All of our survival is paramount on this mission. Let me consider this, and see if I can find any sort of precedent in my law books. Please give me some time and I will get back to you. Agreed. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Evans and Franklin walk out of the judge's chamber leaving Judge Godspeed with a somewhat frightened look on his face. He knew this was his first major decision, and it had everything to do with the survival of the crew. Surviving would take precedent over all else, and be first and foremost in importance as far as the court was concerned on Explorer. Judge Godspeed calls in his four attorneys and Katie, his assistant and stenographer, to discuss this unique situation. How it took over six years of training and preparation for this question to finally be thought of and brought up baffled Judge Godspeed. It made him quietly wonder to himself what else there could possibly be that we have all missed prior to embarking on the collective suicide mission. We're doomed, he thought to himself. To be continued, to be continued.